0: All right, good morning, if you have your Bibles, grab them. Romans chapter 13, Romans chapter 13, it is a doozy, Romans chapter 13 is where we're going to be this morning. I don't know why these lights are flickering, if it gets too crazy, we may just turn the other ones on, Stop. Um I knew this was a difficult text. When uh, I had a professor who, uh, we were in this class called Great Books, and he would just pose questions, and we'd spend three hours in the class debating them. Um, And and he asked the question, if you were in the Northern Yankee Army in the Civil War, and were ordered to go to this camp of uh, Southern uh, Confederate soldiers, And to take them out. And you're sneaking in the middle of the night. And uh, you sneak up on them and you catch them praying. What do you do? And you're a Christian. What do you do? Do you obey your orders and kill your brothers and sisters in Christ? Or do you not and disobey orders? When I was young, there was a cultural rule that we all followed. Anytime you go to a cookout, anytime you're at a friend's house, anytime you're in polite company, there are two things you don't talk about. What are they? Religion and politics. That rule is gone. That rule has ceased to exist. Facebook is a great example. Uh... Facebook used to be about posting pictures and watching your kids grow up and keeping in touch with people you haven't seen in a long time and, and posting, you know, what you're eating every day so everybody knows what you're eating. Uh, it used to be about those things. Now it has become a public forum for airing your political thoughts and views and frustrations. Uh, it, ha- it is an example of how this rule, that we don't talk about politics and religion in polite company, has gone away. And whether that is good or bad is not really for me to decide. It is probably a little bit of both. It's both probably good and bad. Okay, I don't know what's going on with the lights. Ryan, just turn them. We're going to get bright in here. We're just going to turn the other ones on. You got it? Sorry. Is it, it driving me crazy. in. Flip the switch. And God said, let there be light. And (laughs) it takes a minute. All right. You can maybe turn these stage lights off. I don't know what's going on. I don't know. Oh, yeah. I don't know. Somebody fix that. All right. So whether it is good or or bad that Facebook and the public – Forum of, uh, we don't talk about politics, it's gone is not for me to decide. Um, but our interest this morning lies in this question. What does the Bible have to say? What does the Bible tell us about politics? And it just so happens that Romans 13, where we're at this morning, uh, has some things to tell us about how Christians should conduct themselves and think about politics. So let's read together Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 7. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God and tending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. This is the word of the Lord. There is a lot to digest here, and some of it, honestly, I don't like. And you are not going to like, particularly paying taxes, but other parts too. I did not write this letter. I am simply the mailman. All right? So if you get mad, you get mad at God, not me. Uh, And let me know how that works out for you. You know, expository preaching, that is the preaching that goes verse by verse through books of the Bible, means that I don't get to skip the hard texts, because if it was up to me, I'd have probably just, yeah, skipped over this one, just moved on, talk about love that's later in the chapter. But this is one of those passages that is difficult, and my job this morning is to try to be faithful to it, and to first and foremost be committed to faithfully teaching the scripture, as it says. So, this is a hard text for me. It's going to be a hard text for you. But our goal this morning is, is to seek to be biblical and apply the text. And when it steps there on our toes, we conform to the Bible. We don't conform the Bible to us, right? So, that's what we're going to try to do. And so, be kind and gentle toward me, like we talked about last week, all right? So, I think the best way to talk through this content is to really ask five questions about the text. All right, five questions about this text. The first question, why did Paul write about politics? Like, if, if, the, uh, if the saying goes that we don't talk about politics and religion, why in the world is Paul doing them both together? If the Bible is about faith and about how to follow Jesus, why does Paul spend precious time and paper to talk about politics? I think kind of a couple quick reasons. One, that Paul wants to show us that the same way we are called to treat our neighbors from chapter 12 also extends to those in political power. All right, remember we said last past couple of weeks that the first 11 chapters were the theology of the gospel. They taught us what was true about God and the gospel, and the last five chapters we get kind of the theology of practice. We get we figure out what do I do with my hands? Like Like Ricky Bobby, right? What do I do with my hands? Uh, last week, Ryan did a really good job of showing us from chapter 12 of what it means to, to love and to serve and to honor our neighbors and those within the church. How do we do that? How do we love, honor, and serve people? And Paul said all of these great things in chapter 12 about how to treat people, right? And I suspect it would be easy for Paul uh, and and easy for us and easy for those that that he's writing to to listen to chapter 12 about love and serving and honoring people and go, yes, amen, Paul. That is, I want to be a person that honors people better. I want to be someone that serves people and loves people better. Amen, Paul. It's easy to look at chapter 12 and to rally around that and think, this is great, But then you get to chapter 13, and Paul is showing us that the same things that are true in chapter 12 become true of those governing authorities that rule over you. In chapter 13, he is applying 12 to to an area that we might willingly or unwittingly say, "Eh, I'm not really going to apply these things over here. I'm not really going to apply all these truths of chapter 12 to those government officials that I don't like. Paul is saying we can't get away with that. These things that are true in chapter 12 are also true of those politicians you don't like. They are still your neighbors. Two examples of that from chapter 12 is in 1219. He says, leave vengeance to God, right? That we don't take vengeance into our own hands, but we leave it to God to do. Well, one of the ways God executes his vengeance is through the agency of the government, It's not the ultimate way he does it, right? It's not the final way he's going to do it. But there are some times that God uses the government to execute vengeance. And sometimes, to be sure, the government gets it wrong, right? The government has gotten it wrong plenty of times, but the government, as we're going to see, is an arm of the justice of God. Another way, in verse 12, 18, he says that we are to overcome evil with good. If we are to be a people that overcome evil with good, and we are to bless those who curse us, there is no easier place to do that than to the government, to governing officials, because many of them just suck, right? Many of them get it wrong a lot. Many of them are terrible. Many of them are corrupt, and so there is no easier way to to apply this logic of overcoming evil with good than to apply that to the government. And many of them in Paul's day were the ones that were torturing and killing his brothers and sisters. And the way we overcome that evil is to direct uh, toward those corrupt evil politicians honor and submission, which sounds pretty counterintuitive to our what we want to do. But to overcome evil with good is to, as Paul's gonna lay out, to honor and to submit and to obey even when they don't deserve it and even when they're wrong. In 12.18 he says, As much as possible, live at peace with everyone. As much as possible, live at peace with everyone. Be peaceable with everyone. And so he is applying that idea from 12 to the government. Obey, submit, honor your government wherever you can. Outdo them in showing honor. Outdo them in showing honor. Overcome evil with good. Another reason Paul is writing this letter is because Paul anticipates that either Caesar or some other governing officials would probably have gotten their hands on this letter and read it. And he wants to make sure that they know that it is not his desire or the desire of this new movement called the Way, Christians' desire, to overthrow the government. Many Jews of the day wanted to overthrow the Roman government, right? Uh, uh, Simon the zealot right, wanted to overthrow the government before he started following Jesus Islam throughout history has wanted and tried to overthrow and control governments but Jesus wanted to make clear that the mission of the church the mission of Christians was not to overthrow any government rather the Christian mission is actually much bigger than that it is much bigger than controlling some puny earthly seat of power The Christian mission was about a king, is about a king, and a kingdom who is coming in which no political leader could stop anyway. And so our job now is to live peaceably as foreigners in a land that is not our home. We are aliens here and we are to make the best of it. Like the Jews when they were exiled into Babylon, that like God told them to go in, right, to advocate, to build, to plant their lives there for the good of Babylon, to make a home there, to be salt and light for the better of others, all the while inviting them into a kingdom that is bigger and better than anything this world has to offer. Paul wants any government officials to read this letter to know that we're not trying to take power, we're trying to make disciples. Second question we want to ask is, what was the government like when Paul wrote this letter? Right. That seems to be a helpful context. This isn't a question the text is asking, but it's a question we should ask of the text. Knowing the context in which Paul, through the Holy Spirit, inspired, gave these commands to give us insight into our present day situation. That... Like, like, would Paul, would, would he, knowing the context, would help us answer, would Paul have said these same things about our government? Like, a big question is, that we would have is, how can I honor a political leader that I don't approve of, him or her, and I don't want to endorse what they stand for? How do I honor a politician who I don't approve of and don't want to endorse? And that's a great question. And if Paul is, in his day, if he was honoring good Christian men and women in politics, it would be easy for us to say, yeah, Paul doesn't understand the context that we are in because our politicians are so bad that he's asking me to honor. But that's not the case. It's completely the opposite. So what was it like in the first century when Paul wrote this about the government? First, you have Caligula, who was the Caesar around the time Paul was writing this. Caligula was unfit to keep a pet let alone run an empire. I want to run through a laundry list of Caligula's great accomplishments. He had his mom and brother killed to make sure they never challenged his right to the throne. He openly committed incest with three of his sisters. He frequently would cross-dress and go out in public. He installed his favorite horse. I can't pronounce the horse's name. It's a Greek word. He installed his favorite horse as a senator and then later promoted him to consul. I don't really understand why you would promote a horse to the Senate because it seems like they would always vote nay. <laughs> <laughs> Caligula once got mad at the weather and he declared war on Neptune. The <laughs> Ryan, I need you to get it together. He declared war on Neptune, the Roman god of the sea, and he ordered his soldiers, the Roman army, to go whip the waves and bring home seashells like plunder of his domain. He had the heads of statues of deities, of their gods, removed and replaced with busts of his own image. Imagine if Biden or Trump superimposed their face on every statue of Jesus in Washington. Often during the gladiatorial games, which were brutal and horrific enough as they were, he would take random people from the crowd and throw them into the arena to be attacked by wild animals for his entertainment. And after this, you have Claudius, who secedes him, who was a little less crazy but just as cruel, and then he hands the throne over to Nero. And Nero, by the way, when I say handed over... It means Nero's mom killed Claudius in his sleep so that Nero could replace him. Nero, of course, turns out to be the cruelest, most sadistic Christian killer of all time. He intentionally set fire to Rome and stood on his balcony playing a harp like he's some kind of tragic Greek poet while Rome burns. And then he blamed the Christians for Rome burning and therefore crucified hundreds of them. We know that one time he had a party in his courtyard, and he lit the party by Christians impaled on pikes, burning it to death. Another time, he got mad at his pregnant wife, and he kicked her to death, and he felt bad about it. So later, he had a boy who kind of looked like his wife, castrated, and he married the boy and claimed him to be his wife and called him by her name. Paul would not have approved of or endorsed the vast majority or probably much any of what the government leaders of his day were doing. And if there was a free election, he probably would not have voted for any of them. This is the context in which the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to command us to honor and to obey and submit because they are God's agents for good somehow. That context is important for us because we really need to be careful saying that we cannot honor and submit to any political leader that we disagree with, uh, their policy or their lifestyle, because honoring the crew we got is one million times easier than honoring the crew Paul had. You see, God would have us honor the same political leaders who would have our brothers and sisters in Christ burning alive on torches to light his party. And yet, so that's what God would have us do, and yet we will dishonor, not just disagree with, we have every right to disagree, but dishonor and dehumanize a political figure because gas prices are too high. The point is, Paul writes these commands is in a context that is, is hostile to Christianity that you could imagine. And yet still, the Holy Spirit, through Paul, is calling for the honoring and submitting to these authorities. Therefore, we don't have any excuse in our modern context for why we would not do what is commanded of us. So the thrust of the content of this chapter is really answering two questions. Chapter 13 is really answering two questions. What are the responsibilities of the government? And what are the responsibilities of the governed? That'd be us. So let's look at that. First, what are the responsibilities God has given to the government? Look at verses 3 and 4 with me. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he, is, he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Anytime me and my wife are driving separately and we're headed home, and she's often in front of me, like leaves church before me or something like that. Uh, And anytime she does, we're driving separately, and it's a day ending in Y, uh, that means there's a cop hiding in Morrow trying to catch someone speeding. And so she will often text me a picture, the little emoji of the cop car, to let me know to slow down because there's cops hiding in Morrow. When we're in the car together, she will often comment about how fast I'm going, telling me uh, how fast you You need to slow down. You need to be careful, cops are out. You need to be careful, watch out. And anytime we pass a cop, we're driving and the, we'll see one tucked in somewhere. Or we both do this. You know, I'm looking to, looking for lights, looking for lights. <laughs> and usually, she will say something like, "You know, if you just went the speed limit, you wouldn't have to worry about that." You wouldn't have to worry about getting pulled over. But she's exactly right. If I, if I obeyed the law and went to speed limit, which you should all do, right? You, you, if you aren't breaking the rules, then you have nothing to worry about. If you're not breaking the rules, you have no reason to be worried about a police officer pulling you over. To the government has two God given responsibilities. The first is to punish the bad. Punish the bad. Paul says that the government doesn't carry the sword for no reason. They have the power to punish, to make war, to put someone to death, to put you in jail. And understand what Paul is saying. When the government rightly, that's a key word, when the government rightly punishes the wrongdoer, and to be sure that they get it wrong a lot and they punish wrong people all the time. But when they get it right, whether they're Christians or not, and whether they understand they are God's agent or not, they are doing justice in God's name. And they are God's avengers, whether they realize it or want it or not. And so the government should seek to do justice, to punish bad people who do bad things, to protect the innocent. Now understand, we're talking about every aspect of the government, right? Right? whether that's the president, Congress, the judicial branch, all the way down to police officers and social workers and teachers, right? Everyone who works for the government should seek to diligently do justice for everyone and to, to do, end bad stuff. Our, literally, our Constitution says that, right? Seek justice for all. And when the government fails at this, whether it's because they've allowed criminals to go free or they've poorly run the court system and have allowed uh, immigrants to to back up and now they're living in an inhumane uh, treatment uh, as image bearers or whether it is failing to put foster children in homes that they can thrive and be loved or whether it is they are ripping unborn babies from mothers' wombs or whether it is they allow predatory lenders to take advantage of people in times of crisis or anything else when they fail... They are failing their God-given assignment, assignment and will be judged accordingly. You see, the government res- bears the responsibility to protect its citizens. That is a God-given assignment from enemies. They are to protect its citizens from enemies home and abroad. They're given the sword, or in our context, they're given the gun or the bomb for that reason. And when they use it, they use it in God's name, whether they're Christians or not, and whether they intend to be instruments of God or not. And they'll be held accountable for how they use it. Second, so the first, the government is is to to stop bad stuff. Second is they are to promote good. Do what is good and you will receive approval, he says. The point of punishing the bad is to help people do good. The government's job is to promote promote the general welfare of its citizens. This is why we pay taxes. And it's why Paul commands us to pay taxes on whatever we owe The government is responsible for providing roads and services like 911 and police officers and firefighters and zoning ordinances and international trade agreements and national defense. These things are to promote the good for our country. And he makes it clear at the end of this section that we are to pay taxes to whomever we owe taxes to. And if they are too high, we might advocate for lower. But as Christians, we pay taxes. We don't rebel and throw our tea in the sea. This is all the Bible really says about the government. Tim Keller is helpful when he says, Christians need to be wary of extreme ideology views on the role of government. On the one hand, it is hard to find biblical support the very conservative view that government should do nothing but basic law enforcement. And on the other hand, the Bible cannot support the very liberal socialist view of the government as savior. The government should punish the bad and promote the good. Punish the bad and promote the good. So let's go on to question four. And this is the real practical question for us. This is where the rubber meets the road. This is where you guys can be mad at God and not me. Question four, what are the responsibilities of the governed? I think there are three basic things that every Christian is called to and commanded by God to do as it relates to the Christian's relationship with the government. The first, submit. Notice the repeating theme in this passage. First verse, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. And he says, whoever resists the authorities, resists what God has appointed. And the last one, therefore, what one, must, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. It is first off indisputable that we are commanded by God to submit to our government. And remember, Paul is writing this about a government that's slaughtering his people. But in that last verse, he tells us that we submit not just because we're afraid of getting caught, right? Like, I'm, like, we do it for the sake of conscience, he says. Like, I know a lot of people who don't report all of their earnings on their taxes because they say, oh, well, you know what? The government doesn't know about this money. The government can't know about this money, so I'm not going to report it. But we don't submit to the government for fear of getting caught. We do it because of conscience, the verse says. Meaning, when we submit to the government, we are not primarily submitting to the government, we are primarily submitting to God. Because every authority that exists exists because He's willed it, willed it to exist. They are His arm, His agent, His avenger. When we obey the speed limit, we should do. When we obey the speed limit, when we tell the truth on our taxes, when we follow the fire code in the building and limit amount of people you can have in a room, when we follow the law, when we submit and obey our government, we are submitting and obeying God. Paul makes that very clear. So there is one example of this that has uh, happened recently that was very challenging for us to think through as Christians. And I would, I would be amiss. I would have, I think, failed in my ability to, to apply this and help us think about this if I did not use this example. So just bear with me and be gracious and let's think about this together. That is the issue of masks. Y'all ready? So when Paul tells us to submit, that means when the government 2020 required us to wear masks. We all reacted differently. But if you think that masks are ineffective, they don't work, if you think it's bad policy, if you think that it's not helping at all, and if you think the government is just trying to make us sheep and obey them so they can do other things to us, you might be right about all of that. Like you might be 100% right about all of that. That doesn't change the outcome of our job as Christians. We can think something is bad policy. We can think something is wrong. We can think something is stupid. That doesn't mean we don't submit. God has called us to submit to the government because he put them there. And when we submit to them, we submit to him. Even when we don't like it. Even when we think it's dumb. Right? And so that's that's what God is calling us to do. And so to obey or disobey isn't to obey or disobey the government. It's to obey or disobey God and the mass thing was hard right it got political it got it divided us but as christians we should sort have of said hey we're not taking any side we have our own thoughts about it as individuals right or wrong our job is to submit now submitting to the governing authorities we see it throughout the bible right we see heroes of the faith submit to authorities that are foolish and incompetent But we also see examples of those who disobey the rulers. When the rulers demand them to do something, they disobey the direct command. Think about Daniel uh, uh, when he's commanded not to pray. There's a law against praying, and, and he does it anyway. Think about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego when they're commanded to bow down to the idol. They don't do it, and they're thrown into the fiery furnace. Think about the disciples when they're commanded. They're whipped and flogged and beaten, and they're commanded not to preach about Jesus, and they go and do it anyway. Should we obey God? Or men, when the government asks you to do something that would cause you to sin or go against a clear command in Scripture, then we disobey. Then we rebel. Then we don't do it. So if the government tried to force a Christian doctor to perform an abortion, he should refuse and not submit. If a captain of the police force tries to force a police officer to plant evidence and frame an innocent man, he should refuse. If your boss asks you to lie for the good of the company, you refuse. If the government tried to force me or our church to perform same-sex weddings, we would refuse. If they told us that we could not talk about Jesus and seek to convert people, we would refuse. There are times civil disobedience is necessary. There are times that we must and should and will together disobey the government. But they only occur when we would clearly disobey God for obeying the government. Apart from that, no matter how evil, corrupt, broken, or stupid the government is, and they are often evil, corrupt, broken, and stupid, it's our job to live peaceably to submit and to obey the best we can. Because there is a day coming when we're going to have to do that. There is a day probably coming where we are going to have to disobey and stand together and civil disobedience and not submit. But we got to make sure we pick the right issue, a biblical issue, a Christian issue. The second thing we do, we submit to them unless it goes against the Scripture the second thing we do is we honor them. He says, pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes, who they're owed. Revenue, who do it's owed. Respect, to whom respect is owed. And honor, to whom honor is owed. Not only because of this verse are we duty bound to pay our taxes, but we are duty bound to honor those who hold such positions that deserve honor. So here is the question to ask yourself. When you talk about President Trump, Or uh, do you do so with respect and honor? And when you talk about President Biden, do you do so with respect and honor? Now, you might say to me, Brent, uh, uh, President whoever, President this or President that is terrible. You might say his policies are leading to really bad stuff. You can say he's dumb. He's not with it. You can say he's horrible. You can say he's immoral. Uh, uh, How can I honor and respect someone I think is destroying our country? Well, I imagine you have a sympathetic ear with Paul. I imagine Paul would understand who is the subject of, of this murderous, cruel, cross-dressing, horse-promoting, Christian-torturing Caesar. I think Paul would understand how you might have a hard time honoring somebody who is doing bad for your country. I think it's possible, however, to disagree, to think someone's policies or speech or ideas and actions are not good and are really bad, and yet still can respect and honor them for the office in which they hold. Nowhere in any of the New Testament do we see Paul sign off. See y'all later, hashtag not my Caesar. That's pretty funny, y'all can laugh at that. You see, to honor someone does not require endorsement. To honor someone does not require agreement. It requires humility here here's a good way for you to gauge how you should honor them the way you talk about the presidents and the officials that you like and agree with and the way you address those people the ones you like and agree with how you speak about them should be the same way you speak and address and talk about the ones you don't like and don't agree with and if it helps remember when you honor the government When you honor governing officials, you are honoring God because God has placed them there and he is using them for his own purposes. And you are overcoming evil with good and you are living peaceably with everyone. You may not like it. It may not be easy for you. You may have to do it through gritted teeth. But your king has commanded this of you. If you don't like it, don't email me. Take it up with him. The third thing we should do is engage submitting and honoring doesn't mean that you have to be quiet you can submit and be respectful even as you disagree and engage in the conversation about the policy paul in 1 timothy 2 what does he urge he urges christians to pray for the government that they would act justly and let us live peaceful lives right, leave us the heck alone and act justly when Paul stands before both religious leaders and political leaders, what does he do? He seeks to persuade them. He argues with them. He tries to get them to think biblically and rightly. He tries to get them to change their mind. He reasons with them. And so, we who live in a completely different kind of government than Paul did, we can do the same. We can vote, we can persuade people, we can plead with people, we can champion a cause, we can take issues through the court system and sue people to death, hire lawyers and try to change things. We can peacefully protest, we can let our voices be heard, and we can do all of that in such a way that is still kind and gentle, respectable and honoring of those whom we disagree with. And honestly, when we behave that way, when we honor those we disagree with, we're actually more likely to be heard and change people's minds. So we submit to the government and disobey only when it violates God's commands. We honor those in the government from the top all the way down to your teachers, youth, kids. We we can persuade, we can reason together, we can let our voice be heard to make a difference. In a way, we can honor those that we disagree with in a way that honors the Lord. Finally, question five, where do we place our hope? The government will never save us. If you enacted all the best policies, uh, elected all the best leaders, had everyone who was honest as Abe and not corrupt, they would not bring about paradise. C.S. Lewis has this great paragraph where he talks about why he believes in democracy. He says, democracy is the only government that will work on earth because of the sinfulness of men that no one man could ever be trusted with power. So democracy is the only solution. There's this great scene in the first Avengers movie where uh, Loki, who is trying to take over the Earth and rule the Earth, has all these people bowed down before him, and he's, he's all, all in his regalia and looking royal. And he's got he says this whole speech, and part of it, he looks at them and he says, "You were made to be ruled." In the context of the movie, they reject that and they're like, "No, we weren't." But the ironic thing is that he was right. We were made to be ruled. We were created to be ruled, just not by an evil madman, or as the Hulk says in the, in the movie, not by a puny god. Now, we were made to be ruled by the sword of king, who would come and lay down his life for his people. The sort of king who would give up his power. The sort of king who would give up his glory. The sort of king who would give up his riches all in an effort to save us. The sort of king who is not power hungry or corrupt, but shares his power by making us his brothers and sisters and heirs to his very throne. Jesus, our true king, was once asked a question that was meant to trip him up. He was asked if, he, if we should pay taxes. And it was a trap, because either way he said, they were going to accuse him of something. Either he was going to be seen as a rebel against the government, or a contributor to oppression. But Jesus does the original Jesus juke, and he says, whose image is on the coin? And they say, it's Caesar's image. Then give to Caesar what is Caesar, and give to God what is God's. If the coin bears the image of Caesar, then it belongs to him. Give it to him for it belongs to him. But what might we give to God? Well, what bears the image of God? You do. The government is a temporary tool that God uses for all sorts of purposes in this world. They get some things right. They get a lot of things wrong. You are not beholden to them. You are not beholden to them. To a political party your allegiance Christian it belongs to no country no flag no party no man your allegiance belongs to a king and a kingdom you have to if you have not bowed your knees and made Jesus your king and as you bear his image he wants your whole life you can receive his name you can be a part of his family you bow your knees and make him your king and if you know jesus and if you live for him and if you seek first the kingdom of god if we are christians in this world who know jesus live for him seek first the kingdom of god and do those things he commanded us do you know what we are better americans when we are christians first We will do more for this country in so many ways if we see ourselves and act and live out our first and primary allegiance, to Jesus and his kingdom. America is better when we are Christians first. Brothers and sisters, our hope cannot be placed in any election. It cannot be placed in any policy. It cannot be placed in any political party. There is a day coming when the American flag will hit the ground and no one will be around to pick it up. There is a day coming when this country will cease to exist. But the kingdom to which we claim citizenship, the kingdom to which we belong, will have no end. Its king is Jesus. His throne is here on earth. And when he finally comes and takes it, there will be no one who can challenge him. No army can defeat him. No one can defy him. No election can overturn him. In fact, he's already died once and not even death could hold him. And when he returns, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is king for worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive power and glory and honor, for you are the first and the last, the beginning and the end, the Alpha and the Omega, the resurrection and the life, the King of kings and the Lord our Lord, Lord of Lords. Our hope is in him. Our life is in him. Our future is in him. Our strength is in him. Our obedience is his. Our lives are his. Our allegiance belongs to him. To him, our daily bread comes from him. So come, Lord Jesus, come. We await your return as foreigners and exiles in a country to which is not our home. We wait for Jesus, our elder brother. Our hope is in him alone. But until he comes, until he comes, we'll be salt and light. We'll submit, we'll honor, we'll engage, we'll obey. For our king is coming. He will make all things. He is our hope. Let's pray. Father, this morning, we have this difficult text because, and it is hard to want to submit and obey and honor some of the people that have been elected into positions. It is hard to look at bad policy that hurts people. And and while we engage and while we try to change it to to obey and to honor them, God, would you help us as Christians? To be those who live peaceably with everyone. To be those who don't strike first, but honor, respect, while we disagree and while we promote change. Father, help us to be great Christians that we might be great Americans second. Help our allegiance to be primarily and first and exclusively to a king and a kingdom to the scriptures, that we might live here as foreigners and aliens and help make this place better. Help us to engage and make it better because we're such great Christians first. And Father, for those in this room who do not have a king, Lord, would would you give them the strength this morning to bow their knees to you and make Jesus their king? The king who doesn't crave more power. The king who doesn't have bad policy. The, cre- the king who isn't corrupt. But the king who lays down his life for his servants. The king who makes his servants his brothers and sisters. The king who shares his throne with his servant. If you're here this morning and you don't know him, come. Come grab me as we sing this song and let's talk about what it means for you to follow him. If you're here this morning and you need to pray about anything. What's going on in your life? Do that. If you're here this morning and you need to repent as I do, I'll, I'll repent first that I have spoken ill of, of politicians and government officials that I don't like. I have spoken ill and too quickly and too harshly and I've treated image bearers in a way that is not honoring. Father, forgive me. You're here this morning. You need to repent of the way you've done the same. That We're in the same boat. It is hard. God, give us the strength to be above reproach, to be gentle, to, uh, to overcome evil by doing good, and to submit to those that you would place in authority, even we don't understand why you place them in authority. God, help us to do that. If you need anything this morning, we're here to pray for you. We love you. In Christ's name, we pray all people said. Let's stand together.